I spoke to you in cautious tones You answered me with no pretense And still I feel I said too much My silence is my self-defense And every time I held a rose It seems I only felt the thorns And so it goes And so it goes And so will you soon, I suppose Hello and welcome to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway for Sunday, February 2nd 2020, as Peter just pointed out, Groundhog's Day. <laughs> so, <laughs> my name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a playwright, journalist, and historian with a number of books. His columns appear at Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, and many other places. Good morning, Peter. Hi. Welcome back. You were uh, you were traveling last week. Yeah, in St. Louis, um, Maggie Bofill, who uh, played um, God. In my play, God Shows Up, um, was appearing in St. Louis in Mojada, a play I admired very much at the public theater, so I wanted to go out and see her do it. Ironically enough, when I got to the airport, um, I picked up a a Wear magazine uh, at an information desk, and the woman who was running the desk with a big smile said to me, are you here for the hockey game? Because, mm-hmm. indeed, the <laughs> NHL All-Star Game was there last week. And um, I, and whenever people bring something, anything up, like and I'm in a restaurant and they say, are you going to the theater tonight? I always say, yes, let them know that um, theater is indeed something that helps the economy. So I said, no, I'm here for St. Louis Rep. And she said, oh, I was there the other night. Um, The woman who played the grandmother is phenomenal. And indeed, Alma Martinez was in Mojada, just as Maggie Bofill was in Mojada. Um, So it was really great to do that. And not only that, um, that was in their main space and downstairs. There was the Thanksgiving play, um, which, of course, we saw at Play Rights Horizons a while ago and um, very um, amusingly done. And uh, this is a play, but we've had so many plays that mock community theater, such as the Torchbearers. Well, this even goes <laughs> one level lower because the Thanksgiving play um, by Little Arista Fast Horse uh, deals with people who are putting on a, a play for middle schoolers and they want it to be politically correct and make sure they don't say anything uh, that would be offensive to Native Americans, etc. So uh, it was a great day of theater going and I was uh, very glad that I made the trip and uh, had a wonderful time. All right. And then uh, you headed back uh, to New York after seeing a few pieces in the area. And uh, I noticed that perhaps, Peter, um, Mm. we're going to have a second part of your life where you're going to create uh, tours of New York City because you had a New York City, a three-hour tour. <laughs> oh, you read that piece, I see. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, I did a piece for Vesper Broadway talking about uh, how many shows reference places in New York City, including in Flora the Red Menace, 307 West 4th. Uh, that's where uh, Flora is supposedly mm-hmm. living. And ironically enough, it's exactly where John Candy was living at the time. And Fred Ebb referenced that in his lyric in Flora the Red Menace. So I did a, a column dealing with stuff like that that may not be uh, terribly known to t- too many people. It was 
enormous fun to read. So oh, I'll put a, I'll put it. a link to that in the uh, show notes for everybody to get over there and take a look at it. Also I, with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He's also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You could see his photography work at filespotphoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. And, you know, I, uh, apropos what you were just talking about, I may have mentioned this before, but I, I have just moved. But my previous apartment where I was for 18 years, right around the block from that apparently was the location of the Save a Soul mission in Guys and Dolls. <laughs> <laughs> Did they save your soul? <laughs> just going to well, ask the same question. <laughs> well, the address is still there, but the, but, but the salvation, well, the, 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 the concern is no longer there. Uh, the constant changes of Hell's Kitchen. Uh, yes, exactly. exactly. I, you know, it's, it's, it's amazing. You know, uh, if West Side Story were to be written today, could any of those jarts or shacks, uh, sharks or jets afford to live in Hell's Kitchen these days? Oh, no, I don't think so. I mean, that's the point, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> um, and oh, and also, yeah, I think, I'm sure I mentioned this before, but uh, in Guys and Dolls, the Biltmore Garage is mentioned. Mm-hmm. And that is still there. Uh, yes. uh, next to the Biltmore Theater. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> All right. So uh, before we get into everything that we do when we talk on Sunday mornings, I want to remind everybody that you can uh, listen to the eight-part series of uh, interviews from Come From Away called Welcome to the Rock. It's uh, our friends are Curtin Call in the UK have uh, have created this eight-part series, and you can binge it at CFA. That's come from away, cfapod.com, to see and listen to all eight episodes of Come From uh, Come From Away's podcast, Welcome to the Rock. It's a really great series about behind the scenes of how uh, Come From Away was developed. Uh, also, I want to remind everybody that you can support us on Patreon by going to broadwayradio.com slash Patreon or patreon.com slash broadwayradio. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. And uh, support uh, Broadway Radio and all the things that we do here. All right. So, Peter, do you have an answer? You were so good to phone it in last week. Uh, but give us an answer to last week's trivia. Well, uh, what was really interesting was that um, I only got two uh, people who responded. One, of course, um, was Tony Janicki, but we'll do the question first. An 11 o'clock number in a currently running Broadway musical includes a two-line lyric that just happens to comment on an upcoming show that'll soon play four blocks away. What's the lyric, the song, and the show is from? And from what show is it inadvertently commenting on? Well, Tony Janicki's first guest was Jagged Little Pill, because he says, you learn includes the two-word lyric, you learn, repeated many times throughout the songs, saying that, which could say that young and naive Diana Spencer found herself doing just that after marrying Prince Charles. And Diana will soon begin performances at the Long Acre, just four blocks away from where Jagged Little Pill is playing. Yeah, uh, yeah, Tony, but that's two words, not two lines. Okay. Hmm. So he said, all right, uh, how about this? Words, words fail from Dear Evan Hansen at the music box. This was just a sad invention. It wasn't real, I know, but we were happy. 
And he says, well, that could refer to the Lehman trilogy, which is going to open four blocks um, um, from the music box at the Needleland, assume. Um, yeah, but that's three lines, not two. So he uh, said, how about for good from Wicked? Like a seed dropped from a skybird in a distant wood, who can say if I've been changed for the better? And he figured that um, Henry's naive wives might feel their marriages change their lives um, in six. Um, yeah, but that's um, a, a trio of lines, uh, Tony, not um, two. Um, so he tried Beetlejuice, where Holmes says, I'm beaten and bruised, confused by the rules that alter every day. Where to next? And he says that could comment on Caroline and Carolina Chains. Yep, that's the triumvirate of lines, Tony, not um, two. So um, that was a problem. So he tried something from Town. He tried something from Frozen. And finally, he landed on something from the point of no return. Um, past the point of no return, no backward glances. The games we played till now are at an end. And he felt that that could um, refer to the minutes where people ask too many questions. Now, we haven't seen the minutes, but Tony has because he lives in Chicago. So, um, but um, unfortunately, um, that's um, not um, quite what I was looking for. So he tried Chicago. You can live the light. Uh, <laughs> you can live the life you like. You can even marry Harry and mess around the like. And he figured that that um, was a comment on Bobby and her friends and company. Well, that ironically enough is what I was going for. I was going for um, a lyric in Chicago's eleven o'clock number nowadays, um, and I was going for company. But to me, the more logical answer is in fifty years or so. It's going to change, you know, because after all, it's been 50 years now since company opened. And certainly it's changed because we have a female protagonist rather than a male mm. one. So that's what I was going for. Um, ironically enough, Chris Sykes, um, Skiles, I'm sorry, Chris Skiles guest West Side Story. That's he said, I just have a feeling it's West Side Story, which happens to be four blocks away from Chicago. Uh, but uh, the problem there was that um, it's playing now. It's not opening soon. It's right there now. So um, so that was the problem there. But anyway, um, one really does have to give credit for Tony Janicki for not giving up uh, terribly easily. Um, he, he's uh, quite the dog with the bone when it comes to these things. So, <laughs> so we have to uh, acknowledge that. And um, um, certainly, it's not just a college try. It's a university try. So he did extraordinarily well with that. <laughs> All right. So uh, later on in our broadcast, we'll have the question for next week. So let's move into our review section. Michael and Peter both got a chance to see Grand Horizons. So, Michael, why don't you get us started on this? Yes, this is a new play by Bess Wall. I guess you could call it maybe a, well, you could call it a comedy or maybe you could call it a dramedy. And it's about uh, an elderly couple. Do we still use that word? <laughs> uh, Nancy and Bill. And they are, uh, I think, the, I, I think it's said that they are in their 80s or at least 80 and they are living in a um, elderly community uh, and the play opens with a uh, joke that uh, it begins silently. We see the two of them preparing dinner and uh, very methodically just, they, they obviously have their, their, uh, their little quirks and their roles that they do, uh, you know, as to who brings the, 
food to the table and who sets the table and who pulls out the chairs and all of that stuff. And, uh, and it's really very cute and charming. And that uh, maybe lasts, I don't know, I would say maybe three minutes of silence. And then they sit down and begin to eat. And uh, Nancy turns to Bill and says, I want a divorce. And the audience laughs and he says, okay. So uh, it's very, uh, this play has been compared uh, by some people to Neil Simon. Uh, and I would say uh, it's almost like a, a, a new age Neil Simon play because many sections of it do recall that kind of old style comedy. But then there are other parts of it that are very much more postmodern in terms of the perspective, the writer's perspective on the characters. Um, the other characters include the two sons of Nancy and Bill, uh, Ben, played by Ben McKenzie, and Brian, played by Michael Yuri. And uh, we also have um, Ben's wife, uh, who, Jess, played by Ashley Park. Uh, and then there is a, 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 another character who, uh, well, I'll, more on her later, but her name is Carla. She's played by Priscilla Lopez, who it's great to see back on stage under any circumstances. Um, and then uh, the final character uh, who should not be there, in my opinion, is a character named Tommy, who uh, uh, played by Malik Pancholi, who is a pickup um, uh, Michael Yori's character is gay, and one night while he's staying with the folks uh, in in uh, in the wake of their announcement that they're going to be divorcing, um, he picks up this guy and is about to theoretically have sex with him right there in the living room, <laughs> but then things go awry. So uh, those are the characters, and it's set uh, in the present day uh, in this community called Grand Horizons, which uh, I'm sure I don't have to point out that the uh, the, the title is a, uh, a metaphor, uh, can, can be taken several ways, uh, directed by Lee Silverman, by the way. And I um, uh, enjoyed much of the play. I didn't think that my audience seemed terribly responsive, uh, and I wasn't sure if it was the writing or the audience. There were certain things that seemed like they should have been funnier and weren't. Uh, but what's interesting here is that... Um, Jane Alexander as Nancy has uh, has not been on stage for a while, as far as I know, and is certainly not known for light comedy. Uh, so to see her doing it so well uh, was really a wonderful experience. And uh, same thing with James Cromwell, uh, not known for for this type of comedy. Uh, also, he I. Think uh, I think all of his stage work is uh, either in the past or not in this country. So I do, so people, it's a very rare opportunity to see him on stage, uh, and that was um, that was a great privilege as well. Uh, Priscilla Lopez plays. Um, uh, well, I don't think this is a spoiler. She turns out her character Carla is someone who has been. Uh, having an affair with uh, James Cromwell's character, and but then the way, but then she shows up, and the way that plays out is not the way that one might expect it would. Um, I felt like that certain scenes of the play were written in different styles than others, and what's interesting there is that Bess Wall um, is 
a very talented playwright and has quite a few credits already. I did not see, I think, what, what would be judged her biggest success so far, small mouth sounds. Uh, but I did see Make Believe, which I loved one of the best plays I've seen recently. And also I had forgotten that she was one of the writers on pretty filthy. <laughs> Do you remember pretty filthy? Mm, yeah. Uh, and, and so the, the salient point about her is that she seems to be tremendously uh, versatile in terms of the styles that she can write in. Uh, I don't think this play was completely successful, but certainly it's engaging and, and a lot of it is very, very enjoyable. And I do want to say that uh, whatever flaws it has, I thought the ending of it was terribly moving, very, very affecting uh, after a, a lot of kind of over-the-top comedy. So that is an achievement on her part. Um, I, but again, a certain scene to me didn't really seem to fit in with the rest. And, and I also, I, I don't like saying this. Uh, I, I have been a tremendous fan of Michael Yuri for years, but I, I think it's gotten to the point where he's starting to play every role the same way. And it did not seem to fit in um, with this play. Uh, his style of acting in this seemed on a whole different level, a much broader and more stylized and more uh, kind of quote unquote sitcom-y than anyone else on stage. And also uh, heightened by the fact that um, Ben McKenzie, who played his brother, seemed like he was in a completely different universe uh, as far as acting style. Now, you know, I mean, some of that can be attributed to the differences in the characters, uh, and I accept that. But it, it, it seemed to me to go beyond that, and I, I didn't think that they were brothers and that I didn't think they were in the same play. So I, uh, I do appreciate Michael Yuri greatly, but I don't think that this was necessarily the best choice for him and uh, and perhaps he could be a little more selective in in uh, what he chooses to be in in the future. Also, I don't think it was um, the problem of the actor Malik Pancholi. Uh, I think it was. I think it was the writing because I've seen Mr. Pancholi in previous things and enjoyed him very much. But his character in this came across as so loathsome that I could not wait for him to leave the stage. Uh, again, partly, be partly because uh, I, I, I felt that whole scene of the pickup was just, it almost seemed like it came from another play uh, and had nothing to do with what, what else was going on. So uh, I had a very, very, very negative reaction to that scene because of his performance and because of the, way, of the writing and also because of Michael Urie's uh, acting in a different style, as I mentioned before. So those are my negatives on Grand Horizons, but I did think there was a lot in it that was very wonderful. There's a, there's a great coup de théâtre <laughs> at the end of the, the first act, which of course I won't say more about, but, uh, but the audience really seemed to like that a lot and be genuinely surprised by it. Um, and it's a wonderful production uh, at the, at the Hel well, the Helen yeah. Hayes Theater or it, the Hayes Theater. It, the as the you, playbill does say Helen Hayes. It does say Helen Hayes. Yeah. And, 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 you, and you know what's interesting about that, Peter? Mm -hmm. um, I thought I had figured it out that when 
second stage was producing its right. own shows sure. mm. there they were calling it the haze, the haze right because uh, presumably mm. they want they're looking for a naming donor mm-hmm. and they thought it would be like a transitional name sure but um and whereas uh when outside uh productions were being done there yes Mm -hmm. it was the helen hayes but this Mm -hmm. is a second stage production and that i'm looking at it right now that's right (laughs) the helen hayes theater so i don't know exactly what's going on with that but i hope helen sticks around so do i (laughs) (laughs) all right peter what did you think of it uh, you know, it has been compared to a Neil Simon comedy. Um, I, uh, and while Neil Simon wrote many wonderful, wonderful plays, I think that this one um, has more to say because it has two salient points that are worth uh, making. Uh, yes, Nancy and Bill uh, have decided to get a divorce right around the time when they're about to celebrate, and I guess I'll put that word in quotation marks, their golden anniversary, their 50th anniversary, which their kids assumed would happen. And... Um, now the kids are aghast that their parents are going to be splitting and uh, they want them to stay together now and forever. And part of it is they, we get the impression they'd feel more secure if indeed their parents were to stay together. Yeah. But, but what about Nancy and Bill who've lived together day after day, after day, after day and know everything there is to know about each other. And, um, you know, my my girlfriend's um, favorite movie is Two for the Road, in in which um, Audrey Hepburn and Albert Finney notice a couple um, eating dinner, um, and they're not saying a word to each other. Mm. And she says, "What kind of people are like that?" And he says, "Married people," or maybe the other way around. Um, um, I know I don't know the movie as well as uh, Linda does, but anyway, what kind of people do that? Married people, and that's what happens at the beginning, as Michael aptly described. Um, you know, they they have this routine. They sit down. They don't they don't say a word to each other, and then finally, the words they do say indicate um, <laughs> state that they want a divorce. So, um, but the real interesting thing about this play to me is that um, it shows that if you're a parent, well, let's put it this way. After you become a parent, you have to admit that your kid turns out to be your boss in, ex- in essence. Um, it's inadvertent, <laughs> to be sure. James is laughing because he knows what I'm talking about. <laughs> yep. but, the, but the young uns make you do things for, uh, for him, her. Um, that means you're not doing something for yourself. You know, you're working for somebody else. And all this is supposed to end when your child turns 18, when um, leaves the house or goes to college, to work, wherever, forges a life of her own. But Bess Wall knows better. If you have kids, you're never free from their judgments. You've <laughs> given birth to your judge and jury. You know? And um, so there's, uh, we'll see if Nancy, uh, again, the always wonderful Jane Alexander and Bill, um, very stalwart James Cromwell here, can survive the um, demands from their married son and their gay son. So, um, so I think that's a, 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 an issue worth exploring. I think she's explored it very well. The other point that I like very much um, involves that extramarital affair that um, that uh, um, Nancy is, I'm sorry, uh, James is having. And um, there's Priscilla Lopez, who looks great, um, a, a fashion plate. Um, there's <laughs> stuff about uh, her scarf and what have you. and um, And she's been there for the good times. And maybe there's not such good times coming with um, with mm. Bill. And as a result, um, you know, who stays around when times get tough? Um, uh, um, Tom Wolfe wrote a book called A Man in Full, in which um, a man comes to realize, I've never forgotten this line, 
First wives marry you for better or worse. Second wives marry you for better. And that's essentially what's going on here. Um, the mistress is um, going to be there for the good times, but will she necessarily be there for the bad times? Um, so it, it, Michael's right. Uh, <laughs> at the end of Act One, you're going to see the most machina of deus ex machina <laughs> that you've ever likely to see. <laughs> oh, excellent. She, she doesn't wait to deliver it until the end of the second act. The conclusion of Act One is... <laughs> Good enough for her. And ironically enough, a guy in front of me said, well, that woke me up. Um, well, he may have been asleep, but I wasn't. Um, I, I felt the uh, best wall always had me my interest with her on the money perceptions of uh, marriage, children and adultery. So. So, yes, um, I found this a very worthwhile evening and with much more substance than many people have given it credit for. You know, I did notice, uh, I almost forgot to mention, I think another flaw, and please um, set me straight if I'm wrong, but it seems to me the ages are way off. Yeah, I thought that too, Frank. Because if these parents are 80 or older, that means even if the, the two sons are 40, which yeah. would be stretching it tremendously. They look yeah. like they're in their early 30s at most. Right, right. Um, that it doesn't compute. So I, I don't know if, um, I suspect maybe that uh, in the script that the parents are supposed to be somewhat, somewhat younger. And maybe they said, well, if we're going to get uh, Jane Alexander and James Cromwell, we'll just we'll just adjust that a little bit, even if it doesn't make complete sense. No, I, I admit the math um, flummoxed me as well. Um, I, I think they say they're pushing 80 um, as much as they'd like to push it away, but uh, they're pushing it. So <laughs> I remember 80 being mentioned. Uh, yeah, 80 definitely was mentioned. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah this yeah. must be up there. Hmm. All right. So uh, that is Grand Horizons at the Helen Hayes Theater. Matt Temanini and I have gone back and forth on this. We've decided an editorial decision that Broadway Radio, we refer to it as the Helen Hayes Theater until somebody pays us otherwise. <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> so that is playing through March 1st, and we'll have a link to that in the show notes. Um, coming up here, Michael saw the confession of Lily Dare at primary stages. So, Michael, tell us what you think of Lily Dare. Well, I had seen a previous production of this uh, that I guess maybe was considered a workshop or a tryout at Theater for the New City. Um, but now it's uh, primary stages at the Cherry Lane. And this is one of Charles Bush's fabulous genre spoof parody things um <laughs> uh and it's it's one of his most enjoyable he he is just so amazing at this and he gets the absolute absolute best people to uh be in them with him in this case nancy anderson christopher borg kendall sparks jennifer van dyke and howard mcgillan who, as I probably said when I saw the, that workshop production, fits seamlessly <laughs> into this kind of comedy. You might not have thought <laughs> that th this would be uh, something that would, at which he would be so brilliant, but he is absolutely perfect. And what a wonderful thing to see, uh, you know, someone do something uh, completely, completely at variance with what we've seen 
all of his career, basically just being a wonderful leading man in musicals with a beautiful singing voice and usually a, a, a straight man. Uh, well, I mean, he's kind of a straight man in this too, but he, you know, he plays this older uh, character who um, is uh, kind of taking advantage of this, uh, the Charles Bush character, Lily Dare, who starts out as a sweet young thing. And then let's just say she goes through the ringer uh, <laughs> to put it mildly. And her life takes a lot of twists and turns and uh, in the, uh, most of it in the San Francisco Bay area. Um, and it's uh, the, uh, the, the films um, that are referenced here are primarily uh, according to the program, uh, tear jerkers of early 1930s, pre-code cinema such as the sin of madeleine madeleine claudet starring helen hayes (laughs) yes yes (laughs) yes well isn't that a nice little um frisco jenny which i've never even heard of i think and madam x which is probably the most famous of of all three Mm -hmm. uh so there are lots of tropes in in this wonderful wonderful show uh from all of those movies and probably countless others of the time it's about a woman who um, uh she uh, she has to give up her child for one reason or another and uh but she stays in touch with her from afar for decades and and eventually there's a sort of a reunion but i i won't say more because the the little details of the plot are part of are very much part of the fun uh wonderfully directed by carl andres um production values very simple but extremely effective especially the costumes uh costumes not that simple actually (laughs) really really uh really well done by rachel townsend uh set design bt whitehill lighting design kirk bookman and uh charles bush really is a theatrical treasure uh, and I, but I, and I can't, I have to repeat that I think he's smart enough. He's certainly smart enough to know that, uh, the, when he gets amazing, excellent people to work with him, it only makes him look that much better. Uh, Nancy Anderson is phenomenal in this, and, but also people I, I, I'm not as, as familiar with, including Christopher Borg and Kendall Sparks. Uh, Jennifer Van Dyke, uh, when I saw her in the, workshop of this i thought wow she is just amazing and she she repeats that performance here it's an utter delight and so i i highly 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 recommend it all right so uh that is going to be playing through march 5th i see 2020 uh, uh, down at the Cherry Lane. It is a primary stages production, um, but it is a Cherry Lane. So we'll have a link to that in the show notes. Last week, uh, Jenna and Michael talked about a soldier's play uh, playing at the American Airlines Theater, a roundabout theater company production. Peter and I have gotten a chance to see it. So, Peter, what did you think of a soldier's play? Oh, I love a soldier's play, and I have um, since the beginning. Um, and um, I also love uh, the movie, version which is called the soldier's story um and um uh, i'm not the least bit surprised that it won the pulitzer prize that year which it greatly 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 deserved um it's it's a play that's very fair to everybody um and it's not easy to be fair under these circumstances because what we're Mm. dealing with is the military and um unfortunately uh, when you come right down to it 
The military um, is the closest thing we have to slavery in this country because, after all, there's no negotiation with anything when it comes to the military. You have to take every order. You can't say to your boss, hey, I've got a suggestion. No, you cannot. Um, that can't be done because what happens is that um, it's yes, sir, and um, that's it. Um, so um, that's part of the problem in a soldier's play because what we have here is a real tough, tough guy who runs the show. That's Sergeant Vernon C. Waters, wonderfully played by David Allen Greer, a really tough, tough guy. And what we're talking about is um, African-American people and um he's african-american and he's an older man who um went through the first world war and now that we're in the second world war he says to his black um underlings the black man got nothing out of the first world war we came out of it we weren't any farther ahead in progress and that's not going to happen again we are going to make sure make sure that we come out of this war with something that we are going to be more equal, at least. Um, we're going to achieve more. We're going to show people that we are extraordinary and let them know all our tremendous worth. That's his real um, motive and really mission in life, um, when you come right down to it, that um, it makes certain that things will not be the way they were. And because he has that in his head, he's not going to be nice to the men who he feels cannot make that adjustment. That's what's important to him. And so he is pretty brutal and unfair to the people he feels that he has to weed out. Now, this is ironic that we're talking about World War II because back in Germany, the same type of thing was happening uh, with the man who felt that he had to um, exterminate the uh, lesser people so that he would have a master race. So ironically enough, here we are, World War II, and the same thing is happening here on a far lesser scale, of course, but nevertheless, the same type of thing is happening. Well, one night, Sergeant Waters gets drunk and um which is really surprising it's it's atypical for him and um and he is murdered and who did the murder well that's where captain richard davenport comes in wonderfully played by blair underwood he's going to have to um uh, interview everyone um who was around that night and so it becomes a murder mystery of sorts and um you have to find out who's who's done what you have to put it together yourself and it's really wonderful where one recruit um seems to be stupid and yet he comes up with a piece of information that's tremendously helpful which again points out the fact that things are not you should pardon the expression black and white that after all, um, all of us have flaws, all of us have assets. And uh, so you can't just blithely say these people are inferior and they must be exterminated. It's not that simple. Um, we all have stuff to offer. And um, really, it's, it's wonderful to see this man who we think is uh, a dim bulb shine. So um, a very, very effective production, and I'm very glad that it got uh, revived. Um, I don't want this play to be forgotten at all. And so um, I'm very grateful that Kenny Leon uh, brought Charles Fuller's play back to life. 
and uh, did a fine job of it at the uh, what the theater I always called the American Theater. <laughs> you know, uh, when we talked about it last week, I mentioned I have never seen the movie. I'm really going to have to catch up with it. It's 1984. I'd forgotten it was directed by Norman Jewison. Yeah, who really had a very um, atypical career, um, you know, because he also did the movie Jesus Christ Superstar, which I think is very good. The numbers peak exactly where they should be peaking. And um, Fiddler. And Fiddler, yeah, which um, is is a movie that a lot of people thought would win the Oscar that year. In fact, the French Connection did. But and uh, if we're going to get into real trivia, he was the original director of the Meredith Wilson musical Here's Love, now known as Miracle on Thirty Fourth Street. But uh, producer Stuart Ostro decided he could do a better job himself and uh, fired Norman Jewison in Detroit and took over. And David Allen Greer, by the way, is in the film A Soldier Story in a, in a smaller right. role. Right. Yeah. And you know who else is in it? Well, Adolf Caesar, Howard right. Rollins, mm-hmm. uh, Robert Townsend, <laughs> familiar name, and Denzel Washington. So I'm going to really have to catch up with that at some point. <laughs> yeah. I, when I saw A, a Soldier's Play this week i have never seen another production of it i'd never seen the movie so it was all new to me and the uh, press reps kept on making a, a strong point of that that this is the first broadway production of yeah charles right. Fu- fuller's right. uh show so uh even though it's the first broadway production since there was a major off-broadway in a film i, I guess this will be considered in the revival category yeah sure sure um as well yeah. it should be yeah. yeah, 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 and I have to tell you, it was as new to me as as, as if it were written yesterday. I loved this, and I loved the performances. It was really, it was a, a tremendous, uh, enrapturing. Uh, I mean, the, the whole thing flew by. It was only about two hours long, but it seemed to me, uh, you know, not for a minute did I did I wonder, you know, is this. Uh, is this uh, going anywhere? I mean, uh, the intensity of David Allen Greer and Blair Underwood and everybody in this company was was just really, really wonderful. And as I mentioned, I, I really knew nothing about A Soldier's Place, so I did a little bit of research on it. And in 1991, there was... Uh, there was an interview on CUNY, C-U-N-Y, City University of New York Television, uh, that is uh, an interview with Charles Fuller, talk about this show. And I'm going to link to it and put it in the show notes because mm. it's, just, it's just fascinating that, uh, you know, what seems very, very topical uh, at, at these exact moments was the same thing that uh, was being talked about in generations before. Um, it's an extraordinary play and yes, it, uh, it really, it, it, it's great to have it back. And I, and if you can imagine, it's hard for us to imagine unless we were there, uh, how, how, uh, incredibly effective it was in the early eighties when maybe, uh, a lot of this stuff had not been examined yet. Mm. Uh, so this is running at American Airlines Theater through March 15th. Uh, they have a show coming in right behind it, so I doubt that it's going to get extended. Mm-hmm. So you should definitely uh, try to get to it sooner than later. I think that Roundabout's one of those houses where their subscriptions people come in later in the run. So I think that tickets will get tighter and tighter as you get closer to March 15th. So try to get there sooner than later. Uh, and also that, uh, again, that 
that interview with Charles Fuller, who is 80 years old now and is still uh, still with us. Uh, but that interview from 1991 is in the show notes, so take a look at that as well. Michael, you got uh, a chance to get out to the Argyle Theater in uh, Babylon on Long Island to see a production of The Little Mermaid. So tell us about this. Yes, every production I've seen of The Little Mermaid since the Broadway original has been superior, uh, even though... Uh, in every case, the budget, well, actually, the, f- the first time I saw it uh, after Broadway was at Paper Mill. And that was, uh, I guess, the premiere of a re- significantly revised version of the show. Um, not, not tremendously revised, but a couple of numbers swapped and uh, other changes made in the, in the script. But I think the main thing, um, the, the main point here is that the problem with the Broadway production was that it was misdirected and overproduced. Um, now, overproduced is hard, hard to, you know, I mean, obviously it's a matter of opinion. And, and, uh, and when you say overproduced for a Disney show on Broadway, what exactly do you mean? But it just seemed like that it, was not very effective and every production i've seen since then uh even though this one for example i would say probably had the budget was maybe oh god i don't know one one thousandth of the broadway production it just works so much better and i think that's only partly because of the rewrites um some of the rewrites i actually uh don't necessarily like um one main thing is that the original song uh the original first song that the character ursula had uh has been swapped out for another one and i and honestly i don't like either of them uh i think that her only good number is poor unfortunate souls which is of course the one carried over from the movie where it was done so brilliantly by pat carroll um because that's uh, it's directly related to the plot, and they keep feeling that they have to give her another sh- showcase because I guess you know they wanted to add songs to the show because there aren't that many in the in the movie. Um, but the but these songs that they, they you know, these other both of these other songs that they wrote for her are just not we, we don't care really about. Um, anything else she has to say at least i don't so i think that's uh, a flaw that remains in the show but that's really the only big one uh there's another song that has been cut uh is a song called human stuff uh that was originally sung by scuttle and uh and ariel's other friends uh, in reference to these uh these items that they find uh, that Ariel finds and the rest of them find from the, uh, from the world above the surface. And uh, it's, it's a cute enough number, but not essential. So I didn't really miss that very, very much. Anyway, this production is directed and choreographed by Tara Jean Valley. And as I said, um, uh, qu- quite, quite a low budget as compared to anything you would have seen on Broadway, uh, relative to this show, but a lot, a tremendous amount of heart and a really, really strong cast. Um, as Ariel, Kimberly Emanuel, uh, who's one of the equity members of the company, has the essential, beautiful, very pure, uh, utterly sincere, voice singing voice and manner that uh is absolutely essential for this character uh she also seems 
very young, which is also important because the character is supposed to be a teenager. Um, so she was spot on casting um, her Prince Eric, played by Jeff Sullivan, who is not uh, an equity member, uh, was equally perfect uh lovely voice just just the right look king triton warren nolan jr uh equity member um was uh, a worthy successor <laughs> to norm lewis in the role uh j- just a, a a beautiful voice and a lot of uh his relationship with and his love for his daughter was palpable and that is another very 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 important part of this show and ursula was courtney ballon uh and she was really terrific you may know her uh from her broadway credits the prom falsettos finding neverland uh she was also in title of show cry baby and in my life the notorious in my life <laughs> um wow yeah uh and off broadway she was in i love you you're perfect and i love you because and also the marvelous wonderettes and several other shows uh she really got the style um the camp uh was was right there where it should be and it was a lovely production uh the orchestra was small but sounded wonderful uh i am thrilled to report that the audience was even fuller than the last show that i saw at the argyle they 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 did seem to be uh struggling for their first several shows that i saw there because it is a new company it's quite a new company but um i'm you know i'm sure it's partly because it was a family show but it was very very full and the audience seemed very appreciative and there i have for you both a tale of two children Mm. We had uh, my friend Kevin Maganarni and I were there, and we had uh, we were actually seated at the in the front of the balcony. Uh, well, there were two levels: to the orchestra and then the mez slash balcony. We were seated in the front of the upper level, in the third row, I believe. And um, directly in front of us was a mother with her very young daughter, and Durant directly in front of them was a mother with her very young son. And uh, the, uh, the female child, I'm sorry to say, was, was an absolute horror throughout the show, uh, not only in not paying attention, but in things she was saying to her mother that I, uh, I you know, took my breath away. <laughs> and then she eventually started screaming in act two and, and, and was, uh, was finally uh, brought out by the mother. And then we could hear her continue screaming in the outer lobby for about 10 minutes. So that was not a very good experience, but that little boy, he, first of all, he stood uh, for the whole thing because it, it made the sidelines better for him. And he was absolutely quiet and a hundred percent, wrapped attention to everything that was going on not a peep out of him except you know appropriate laughter and applause when when they were appropriate and he was an utter angel and actually as we were leaving (laughs) um uh, kevin uh we walked by and kevin turned to him and said you were so good and I'm so happy that you enjoyed the show. And his little face just lit up. Uh, and he said, thank you. Oh, that's great. <laughs> and the mother did as well. And it just did my heart good. And it was a wonderful balance and cleansing to that other 
experience that happened. You know, I mean, there are, it's partly an age thing. This, this little girl in question was very young, but the boy was not much older, uh, maybe mm-hmm. a year or two. So, uh, and you know, we never, I guess you never go know till you get there and it's worth trying. But if you do, I would say to parents, if you do find yourself in a situation like that, just say, well, you know, I tried and, uh, you know, let's leave and we'll maybe try again when they're a little older. All right. So that is Little Mermaid and some parental advice. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the Argyle Theater. It's uh, playing. I'm looking for the information. I had it just a second ago, but I mm. wanted to talk about something else. It's playing through February 23rd, 2020 at the Argyle Theater. I'll have a link to that in the show notes. Michael, you talked about the Little Mermaid at, at, uh, at Paper, Paper Mill. Mill. And we heard this week that paper, that's what I was looking at, was uh, Paper Mill is going to launch uh, a rethought tour of Aida. Yes. Uh, and so uh, Paper Mill's uh, partnership with Disney continues to move on, uh, you know, from Newsies to Little Mermaid to Aida to all the other things, Disney and Paper Mill. It's really wonderful that these two organizations are working together. But the Aida, the Aida thing sounds very interesting. Well, uh, personally, uh, I, I don't think we need another Aida because I never liked the show. <laughs> but also, also, uh, I'm very trepidatious if uh, if David Henry Wang's rewrite of his M Butterfly is any indication. I don't know what he's going to do to Aida. So uh, I guess that remains to be seen. I have much more positive feelings about Aida. I have to say that um, in the first scene where Aida grabs the sword, uh, she's a slave. I mean, she's, she's, and she grabs the sword from uh, <coughs> a soldier who's not paying attention. And I'm interested with, uh, in a lady who can do this. Uh, that's pretty impressive to me. And um, needless to say, um, both uh, the people in charge there um, will come to see Aida's worth uh, in one way or another. So I think it's a very interesting story. And um, um, of course, everything can be improved. So, uh, but I'm not as um, dubious as you are, Michael. Well, I would say see the opera. <laughs> oh, there was an opera. Oh, yeah. oh no. yes. Oh. I can't stand the way that the opera rips off Broadway all the time. Isn't it terrible? You know the um, the musical, I believe, is technically based on a children's book version of Aida that was written by Leontine Price. Oh, isn't that something? Yeah, or it's. Uh, I'm not sure if it's actually credited, but it was mentioned uh, at the time that the show opened that, that that was an inspiration. Oh. Mm. So, uh, did you guys hear that, um, the public announced the uh, Richard, the second for Shakespeare in the park. Oh yes. Yep. Mm-hmm. And what was the other play? I can't remember. I just was thinking to myself, Richard, the second, you know, the sequels are never as good as the first. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, the other one is a redo of um, one of the musicals, one of the public works that they have already done. Sorry, I don't have it in front of me. Mm. I'll look it up while we're talking. Okay. So, Peter, uh, you headed over to Paris, or at least to the Atlantic Theatre Company's Mm -hmm. production of Paris. 
Uh, so tell us, what do you think of this? Oh, um, I thought it was terrific. And the title, of course, does suggest the City of Light, and that is not the case at all here. Believe me when I tell you. No, 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 no. What we're dealing with here is Paris, Vermont, which, by the way, I'm told, um, uh, at least somebody said, I, I don't know if it's true or not, but I was told that it's actually um, uh, not a, an actual town in Vermont. But um, but anyway, what we are is at a uh, Walmarty type of place, and we see the people who work there. And good Lord, do they have a tough time of it. This is a good place to see if you think that your life is terrible, um, <laughs> because um, there's no question that uh, the people who work at um, this place, Berries, um, have a, a real tough life. And part of that um, has to do with the fact that um, <clears throat> the boss, Gar, um, is not that far away from uh, the sergeant in a soldier's play. Um, if you come in one minute late, that's called time theft. And he docks you for the minute. Time theft. Think about it. So, um, so he has a real um, hard-nosed attitude with all his people, and it's so sad to see everybody struggling so much. Um, there's uh, Maxine, a woman with four children. She never mentions a husband, and we get the impression that he left long ago, in one way or another. And uh, she has to deal with it. And um, one time, her pay is in error. And um, she makes quite a stink of it. And we understand why when you have four kids. And in fact, um, they've lost their home and they're actually staying in a hotel room uh, under welfare. And um, <laughs> imagine five people in one room, you know, how horrible that must be. So, um, so um, one employee after another has problems. It's so sad when one of them has planned a trip to uh, Montreal, which isn't that far away from Paris, Vermont, <clears throat> for the weekend to get away with the husband. And her paycheck is in error. And now they're not going to be able to go because these are people who live check to check, hand to mouth, hat in hand. It's really so sad. Um, and there's one young man who um, has a rock group that he's looking forward to uh, playing. And we'll see if he gets to make that engagement. He might not as a result of Gar, who, by the way, um, to be perfectly frank, is um, somebody who may not be on the up and up totally. And we get that impression when a character named Carlisle comes in. Now, I'm really impressed when there's a man who is slight of stature, not too tall at all, and yet can terrorize you and make you feel is if he's going to kill you somehow. And that's what happens when, um, when he comes in and we find out something that's been going on that we certainly didn't suspect. Now, all this is filtered through the character of Emmy. Emmy is the new kid on the block. She's the new employee. She needs the job badly. And one of the points of the play is so many times we are desperate for money. We are desperate for work that we take anything we can possibly get. And then on the first day, the second day, maybe the third day, but usually the first day, we see what the job really is and we're, what we're going to have to do day in and day out and day in and day out. Whoa, whoa. You know, this is really, really um, 
made clear here. The play is by uh, an actress we've seen, Ebony Booth, and she's done a terrific job. Um, it, it's it's really one of the, the most potent plays I've seen in a long, long time. Uh, Eddie K. Robinson is magnificent as, as Gar, and... Um, <clears throat> Well, they're all wonderful. Uh, Wendy, the older woman, played by Anne McDonough, who has a, a vague resemblance to Mary Louise Burke. Um, for a second, I even thought it might have been she. Um, uh, she's the woman who wants to go to Montreal. Um, but the question also comes up is, can these people be a family of sorts in, in bonding um, against their boss? And to a degree, they do, and to a degree, they don't. I mean, in a way... Um, you have to be for yourself in a situation like this. You try to support other people, but if you support other people and your boss say, what are you saying? What are you saying? What do you mean? Um, you have to back down because you need the job. So, um, you know, Michael mentioned poor, unfortunate souls, and um, these are they, <laughs> and um, no question. Uh, and yet you care for them. You wish them well, and you wish they could get the hell out of there. And I'm telling you, um, you come out of there, I don't care what job you're doing, unless you're doing a job like this at Walmart. Um, I, I said to somebody, it's like um, the people at Costco, and the person said to me, no, no, the people at Costco are treated very, very well. Um, you should uh, use Walmart as your example. So um, that's what I'm doing. And um, <laughs> so, uh, whoa, uh, this is something that is terrific. It's in a very small space, the Atlantic 2, which is on 16th Street. And give yourself enough time to get to the elevator, because I'm telling you, it's a long elevator ride down. <laughs> uh, this is really, forget about cell service down here. You know, uh, if you forget <laughs> to turn off your phone, it's not going to matter. So um, a very small space and a very potent play. All right. So that is Paris at the Atlantic Theater Company in the Stage 2 space down on 16th Street. It runs through February 9th, so you have about a week to get to it. Uh, By the way, the other um, show at the uh, Delacorte is the 2017 adaptation of As You Like It. Musical version, right? Yeah, which was a product of the theater's public mm -hmm. works program directed by Laurie Woolery with original music by uh, Shana Taub and choreography by Sonia Taya. So that's uh, the other show besides Richard II. Great. Thank you for that yep. research. Michael, you also headed up to 92nd Street Y to see the lyrics and lyricist Yip Harburg follow the fellows who follows a dream. Mm. And uh, what did you think about this evening? Well, Yip Harburg is a fascinating figure, and uh, I knew something about his life uh, in addition to his work, uh, but I certainly know more now. Uh, this was a, a very nice show. Uh, Matt Kunkel directed it. Uh, Paul Mass uh, was the music director and orchestrator, and John Marins, um, who I, I know slightly socially, was the writer and the cast was Michaela Bennett, Laura Darrell, Clifton Duncan, Megan Sikora, and Nick Spangler. Um, and John, uh, first of all, John Marins, I think, did a good job of writing the script uh, in a nonlinear way. Uh, I suppose the easiest way to do it is chronologically, but he mixed it up a little bit, and that made it more interesting. And um, Harburg is most famous for... Harburg is one of those, even if he only wrote people. 
Mm. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. even if he only wrote The Wizard of Oz <laughs> and specifically Over the Rainbow, even if he only wrote those lyrics, he would be an icon. But sure. for that matter, I, even if he only wrote Finian's Rainbow, uh, mm. he, would, he would be an icon. Uh, but in addition to all that, he wrote such songs, uh, lyrics for such songs as Down With Love, uh, Brother Can You Spare a Dime, which became an anthem of the Depression. Uh, Ain't It the Truth, that's from Jamaica, the musical. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, although it had been written previously, I think, for mm-hmm. uh, Lena Horne mm-hmm. for, for a film. Mm-hmm. Uh, Happiness is a Thing Called Joe, which was uh, inserted into the score of Cabin in the Sky for the film version. Um, there seems to be uh, some question about this, but uh, he apparently wrote at least some of the lyrics for paper moon it's only a paper moon um uh but billy rose uh, who was the the producer uh the producer billy rose uh snagged some or all of the credit for that but apparently it's at least partly and maybe entirely Yep, Harburg. Um, what else? Other songs? Uh, he, wrote, <laughs> he wrote the lyrics for Lydia, the tattooed lady, uh, <laughs> <laughs> which, uh, again, uh, you know, if he only wrote that, he'd be, he'd be great. Um, um, Bloomer, uh, Bloomer Girl uh, is a, a score that he wrote the lyrics for, and that has several beautiful songs in it, including Right as the Rain. Um, and uh, the, he wrote so many wonderful songs that uh, some of them were were noticeably absent from this program, but you know it, they only have like two hours, <laughs> including intermission, so they 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 couldn't get to everything. But I'm very glad that that I went, and it was a, a lovely evening to hear the. Uh, he also um, Harburg was great at. Uh, he could be very very clever and whimsical and funny, but then also uh, very. Uh, very moving. His lyrics could be very moving and sad and and heartbreaking. And also, uh, he wrote could write a love ballad with the best of them. So uh, there's a yearning in a lot of his songs. Look to the rainbow, uh, and how are things in Glockamora and, and <laughs> over the rainbow uh, are three examples. Um, and uh, and some of his collaborators, of course, were 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 among the greatest composers of their day including harold arlen and burton lane uh to name only two so um the lyrics and lyricist series i've i've extolled it before it's a wonderful series and uh always uh, they they usually have um very uh interesting uh slides uh uh, slide projections aside from everything else to accompany these shows and uh, a lot of historical materials that make it that make these shows very very interesting uh so please do put them on their on your radar if they're not already so michael you got over to 54 below to see the wonderful christine andreas and i hope i didn't color that wrong i mean what did you think of her show you hope you didn't do what? I'm sorry. <laughs> Color that wrong, you know. Yeah, you know. I, sh- yeah, you I should be say- neutral, you know. <laughs> oh no, While no, introducing. no. <laughs> Never fear. No, isn't She's she wonderful? One of my all-time favorites. She, uh, her voice, her amazing voice is completely a hundred percent intact, and she looks unbelievably gorgeous and phenomenal. Uh, probably shouldn't 
get into discussion of her age, but let's just say that she <laughs> looks amazing. Um, and she was performing with her, uh, her husband and longtime longtime partner, Martin Silvestri, who is one of the best in the business uh, as a musical director, pianist, and also as a composer. Um, this was a wonderful program. Uh, I teared up several times during it, um, prob- partly because of what's going on in the country, which uh, Christine addressed by singing the song, Take Care of This House from 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. Uh, but other songs in the in this wonderfully beautiful, eclectic program were the title to- song from She Loves Me, um, a, uh, uh, oh, My Romance, uh, and Falling in Love with Love, two Rogers and Hart songs. Uh, uh, on the lighter side, also from Rogers and Hart, To Keep My Love Alive from a Connecticut Yankee, uh, which was the last song that Larry Hart ever wrote. Um, uh, you know what she sang? Uh, I wonder how she became acquainted with this. That that really wonderful song, Laughing Matters, from, mm-hmm. from uh, When Pigs Fly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there again, that certainly addresses <laughs> our current situation. And the way it... Uh, the way it ends is is so moving, uh, given what's been happening the past few days. Um, she did another song I teared up on was she started with uh, "What a Wonderful World," uh, that old song that that I guess is most famous in the Louis Armstrong rendition, uh, written by I had to look it up Bob Thiel and George David Weiss, and she did a, a, a mini medley of that into "If I Ruled the World." Uh-huh. From uh, Pickwick, yes, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, then she sang "Here's That Rainy Day," uh, and Martin Silvestri put a little tag of "Singing in the Rain" uh, on it that made "Singing in the Rain" sound like the saddest song you ever heard. Uh. <laughs> um, she sang uh, how eclectic, but so beautiful this program. That incredibly beautiful Billy Joel song, and so it goes. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. And then speaking of E.Y. Harburg, uh, she sang, and Harold Arlen, she sang Look to the Rainbow. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, E.Y. Harburg and Burton Lane, she sang mm-hmm. Look to the Rainbow. Um, so it was a beautiful evening, and I was amazed that I was, uh, that she, her voice is 100% intact. Um, and I've always thought she, she had one of the greatest voices in the musical theater anyway. So uh, her shows at 54 seemed very popular, very, very popular, and I'm not surprised at all. I don't think um, that, you know, you would necessarily uh, have thought of her as a a household name of musical theater. Uh, She certainly was back in the the late 70s and, and 80s when she starred in several revivals, including My Fair Lady in Oklahoma and On Your Toes. Uh, and then she um, she went away for a while because of uh, she, she had a child and family issues. And But then she came back with, uh, I think, The Scarlet Pimpernel was her big return. And since then, she's been back in a big way, uh, mostly on the uh, you know concert and cabaret stage. Uh, and I think she really has gained a following over the, over the past several years uh, to the point where now... Uh, she was it was if it wasn't sold out it was pretty close so 
another person to keep on your radar. She's absolutely wonderful. All right. So that is uh, Christine Andrea said 54 below. That was uh, January 29th through February 1st. Uh, but you should always check out what's happening at 54 below at 54below.com to s- make sure that you get these tickets ahead of time. So you're not saying after Michael gives these reviews, oh, I wish I saw that. <laughs> well, a lot of them are very yeah. brief runs. But, oh, absolutely. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, so we'll try to let you know as soon as possible. And in that vein, mm-hmm. Peter, there are three things coming up. Not one, not two, but three things coming up that you want to warn us about. Warn. Warn. Warn us. No, I don't, should... no I don't want to Alert. warn. <laughs> no, warn, warn has a negative feeling to it, so I'm not going to say that at all. No, I went to a press preview of The Unsinkable Molly Brown the other day. And uh, this, of course, was a 1960 musical uh, with music and lyrics by Meredith Wilson, uh, who had just written The Music Man, and a book by Richard Morris, who would later write the uh, movie Thoroughly Modern Millie. And, of course, we know Thoroughly Modern Millie became um, a Tony-winning musical and will soon be revived at Encores in a new version, and that has a lot to do with Dick Scanlon. So Dick Scanlon had this nice success with uh, one Richard Marr's property, and so uh, maybe it was time to take a look at another. But as he explained the other day at the press preview, Uh, When he read the original Molly Brown, he said it wasn't for me. And he had two other opportunities to work on it. And um, people say, why don't you do um, Molly Brown? No, no, it doesn't really really interest me. No, no. Um, (laughs) However, um, then he decided to go to Denver and go to the Molly Brown house, which still exists. And he found out a lot about her. And uh, what he found about her is something that never came up in Richard Morris's book or Meredith Wilson's uh, Music and Lyrics. And he said, oh, I think there is something here. So um, one of the things is she was um, very passionate about animal rights and she also ran for Congress and none of this comes up in in the uh, original Unsinkable Molly Brown, which is really a very good story, I think, by the way, of um, a a wife who wants one thing and a husband who wants another and could they ever see um, find a common ground. So anyway, Kathleen Marshall is directing, uh, which is really wonderful. Beth Malone is playing the role of Molly Brown. And um, there are also uh, some stalwarts in there. Um, Paula Lega-Chase is going to be in it, and so is Paul Bantaban. So, um, so they did the first two numbers in the score. Uh, which are uh, two of them. Uh, 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 <laughs> I, th- I think Wally Brown has one of the best one-two punches of um, any Broadway score. Um, that The opening number, I Ain't Down Yet, in which she um, is uh, saying that she's going to be more than somebody who is just a backwoods girl in Colorado, that she um, has goals and she has dreams and she's going to be up where the people are, as she says. Um, and... Uh, so uh, it's a wonderful song and uh, a great opening number, and it's been wonderfully staged by Kathleen Marshall. So, um, so that bode well. The second song is when Molly gets a job uh, playing piano in a bar, and um, it's called Belly Up to the Bar Boys, and it's a wonderfully um, good song, too. Now, in the movie version of Unsinkable Molly Brown in 1964, both these songs were retained. <clears throat> Very few others were. Uh, there was an addition to the score called He's My Friend, which is a terrific song, and Dick told us this will be in this uh, version that is going to uh, be under the aegis of the transport group. Okay. So then they did a third song, um, which um, I, I 
had a melody by Meredith Wilson. It wasn't made clear if it was originally written for Molly Brown or if indeed it was simply a Meredith Wilson song from way back when. He he wrote a lot of popular songs. He had a very interesting career. I mean, as I mentioned in a trivia question a few weeks ago, he wrote the background music for The Little Foxes. I mean, who expects that? Um, He wrote It's Beginning to Look a Lot Like Christmas, which wound up in his show Here's Love, but it was written as a pop song in 1951, and Here's Love was 63. So so anyway, uh, Dick had a song that essentially... Um, had the message of I love you, you're perfect, now change, which Molly and, and, and Johnny are um, comparing notes on their marriage and uh, how they wish that they would make certain changes uh, in each other. So um, he's had total access to the Meredith Wilson catalog. Um, the final Mrs. Wilson has said, yeah, go ahead. Um, and um, I am very enthusiastic about this property. And um, so, it, it, by the way, it was the first show I ever had from a first row orchestra seat. So um, I have a great deal of affection for it when the national tour came around to Boston uh, way back when. So so I'm really looking forward to the unsinkable Molly Brown. And I do believe that Beth Malone is a, an admirable successor to Tammy Grimes, who won a Tony for the part, albeit in Best Featured actress in a musical. And the irony is Tammy Grimes once said to me, you know, I wasn't really enthusiastic about doing it. My agent said to me, are you crazy? There's only seven pages in the script with this girl is not on stage. <laughs> You'll be a star if you do this. And, um, and the, you know, the so, irony is that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah yes. Featured actress. You know what I mean? So uh, uh, Tammy Grimes also turned down uh, a TV series um, saying she thought it was stupid. And that was Bewitched. Oh, right. So I guess, <laughs> so, you know, and Elizabeth Montgomery really had a great success with that. So maybe Tammy wasn't uh, the most um, smart where it came to picking properties. Anyway, so that was the first thing I saw that I really have uh, great high hopes for. I saw two other things I have very high hopes for, too. Um, They, at the moment, um, don't have producers. So young producers out there, are you listening? I'm telling you about two properties that um, I think you should really pay attention to. One of them is called um, Marilyn, Mum, and Me, and it's written by Luke Yankee. Now, Marilyn Mm. is Marilyn Monroe. And uh, indeed, um, I have to say, at the reading I attended, I couldn't believe um, how astonishing um, Marilyn looked. Um, Alicia Soper is the um, young woman's name. I urge you to go on Google Images and uh, look up Alicia, A-L-I-S-H-A, Soper, S-O-P-E-R, where you will see not only pictures of her as Marilyn Monroe, but pictures of her as Alicia Soper. And I am telling you, it, the transition is amazing. Uh, however, you know, that only goes so far. You have to have a good play. And what this is, is a young man interviewing his mother about her interaction with Marilyn Monroe when they were in the movie Bus Stop. And the actress we're talking about is Eileen Heckert. And the son is Luke Yankee, who has done uh, projects here and there. Um, He's directed, he's written, he teaches out in California. And he's written this wonderful play in which his mother is very reluctant to talk about Marilyn Monroe. Um, She doesn't want to talk about her past. I mean, she's very cards close to the vest type of woman. And, um, and you know, mothers and sons uh, can sometimes have contentious relationships and doesn't always go smoothly. And um, there 
I'm not going to say it was a love-hate relationship by any stretch of any imagination. We really get the impression that Luke Yankee loved his mother, um, but there were times when she could be difficult. And if you've seen her in certain roles, including her Oscar-winning Butterflies Are Free, you can see where she could be difficult. So um, <clears throat> so he, he interviews uh, her about that, but eventually... Remember, the play is called Marilyn, Mum, and Me. Um, he eventually gets into issues with his mother, and that's where it becomes really fascinating. Um, it, 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 what's really good is he knows exactly the right moment when to stop talking about Marilyn and start talking about the relationship he had with his mother. So it's a very, very skillful play. And it was a wonderful presentation, um, terrifically done um, with... Um, uh, Bob Cuccioli playing a million roles, um, <laughs> Joshua Logan, you know, Arthur Miller, et cetera, et cetera. So that was great, too. Laura Gardner was enchanting as Eileen, and certainly Brian Rohan uh, played Luke. Uh, he did not uh, play himself. Luke Yankee did not. But um, I do believe that this is a play that has a terrific future. And uh, so young producers, pay attention. Get in while you can. The other project I saw the other night um, was The Big Time. Now, uh, let's come down to brass tacks here. I mean, there's no question that the composer and lyricist is somebody I've been working with, Douglas J. Cohen, uh, who's most famous for No Way to Treat a Lady. So we'll get that out of the way. But I think this is really one of his uh, most superb scores. And um, he's written with Douglas Carter Bean, who um, we know from many properties, from As Bees and Honey Drown all the way to... Um, the Cinderella rewrite, which I thought was spectacularly successful. So um, this is an original musical, and um, it's about a couple of lounge singers um, with an Italian last name, um, Steveniti. And... Um, <laughs> And unfortunately, um, the people who book them assume they're getting Steve and Edie, um, Steve Lawrence and Edie Gomez. The play takes place in 63. And uh, so there's a lot of mistaken identity problems going on there. But um, also there's some problems with uh, Russian agents and um, what might be going on there, uh, the communists trying to take over. So uh, we get a lot of complications there. It's a fun-filled evening, and um, it's a very witty book, as you would expect from uh, Douglas Carter Bean. Terrific school with wonderful lyrics. I, I, I never knew um, anybody who thought to rhyme Xavier Cougat with you got, um, <laughs> but um, I think it was really uh, quite good. Now, ready for the cast? Okay. Santino Fontana, Debbie Gravett, they were the Stevenides. Jackie Hoffman playing a Russian agent. Michael McComb oh. playing a Russian agent. <laughs> Will Swenson playing a Russian agent. Laura Osdis, who is such a Julie Andrews, you have no idea why she, she didn't wind up in that My Fair Lady revival. Um, Bradley Dean uh, was in it as well, and so was Raymond Bokoa. But, I mean, really. Now, this was done at the McCarter Theater, and it was a reading. Now, that is... <laughs> such um, an understatement because yes, they were at music stands. Yes, they were turning pages. Yes, yes, yes. But it was orchestrated with uh, the Princeton Symphony Orchestra. And I'm <laughs> telling you, there were, there were like well, a dozen instruments up there and you know, these tremendous musicians. And this was at the Matthews Theater, which is their 1,200-seat theater. Packed, filled. <laughs> you know, uh, it was uh, an audience who 
was crazy for it, just crazy for it. Um, every, every every bit of applause getting more than the next after every song. And, you know, so many times ballads um, don't tear down the house like up-tempo numbers. But at the end, Debbie Rabbit did a, a, a ballad that may have exceeded uh, the applause that uh, had happened before. And that is an amazing achievement. So by all means, young producers, old producers, producers in between, take a look at these properties if you're looking for something, because these are winners. All right. Okay. So uh, I have found a handful of uh, links that will bring you more information about this, starting with the Transport Group's production of the Unsinkable Molly Brown. It's coming up uh, February 26th um, opening. And let's see, Marilyn and me, we have a YouTube uh, video trailer of it. And uh, the big time, we have the uh, link over to the Princeton Symphony Orchestra and uh, McCarter Theater, the information about that reading. So these are all things that you can uh, check out to plan your theater adventures as they come forward towards us. All right, so before... Before we get on to our trivia question, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of BroadwayRadio.com. There's a subscribe link. That way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be downloaded to Apple Podcasts for for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us in Apple Podcasts. There's many ways to listen to us. iHeartRadio plays us. Tune in, Stitcher, Google Play, anywhere that you can listen to finer podcast, you'll be able to listen to Broadway Radio's offerings. Contact information for Peter, for Michael, and for me, as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today, were in the show notes at broadwayradio.com as well. So, Peter, do you have a question for this week's trivia? Two of the lyricists that Richard Rogers worked with each wrote a song that mentioned a famous long-running show. One lyricist wrote it with him in one of their earliest collaborations. One lyricist wrote it without him doing his own music and his own lyrics many decades later. What's the show that each referenced, each song, and the names of the two lyricists attached to them? Okay, if you have an answer to that, email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. So on behalf of Michael Portantier and Peter Felicia, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you.